what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. If the sound on this intro seems any different than usual, it's because it's the first ever Power Hour intro I've recorded outside. I'm in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where we recently finished up our Light Brigade counter-protest, or really counter-education against the Climate on Forward rally, uh, which we regard as the Blackout Rally, by the Sierra Club and 350.org. And I've just been running around doing all sorts of things to promote it, and this is sort of the first and last chance I get uh, to record the intro before the Power Hour goes out. Anyway, this week we have a treat for you. We've already recorded it, so I can tell you it's really, really interesting. It's an interview with Jerry Taylor of the Cato Institute. Uh, Jerry is a really, really smart guy, incredibly knowledgeable uh, about the theory of energy policy and uh, applied energy policy. He actually writes uh, policy recommendations for government for the Cato Institute. So he brings a really, really interesting perspective, and there are also some uh, interesting Interesting uh, points of difference between the two of us uh, on the show. So, uh, without further ado, oh, make sure to check out industrialprogress.net for the latest updates on the Light Brigade counter-education and uh, some other new things we have coming up. And without further ado, for real this time, uh, listen to me interview Jerry Taylor on the other side. All right. Joining us this Power Hour is Jerry Taylor, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Jerry, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right. Um, Based on your expertise in energy policy, both uh, modern but also historical, I wanted to, to do something we haven't really done on the show too much, which is is look back at what has U.S. energy policy been uh, throughout history? And and the first aspect I want to tackle is environmental, because certainly when I was in school, what we learned is the government took no legitimate uh, measures on environmental issues, on protecting people's environments until the environmentalists woke us up in the 60s and 70s and saved the day with things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean uh, Water Act. And as some people on the show know, uh, I think that all those pieces of legislation are flawed, but it's helpful to know what came before. So could you give us a sense of what the environmental policy, if you will, was like in the 1800s in this country? Well, yeah, there's been uh, three evolutions in policy. The initial regime for protecting the environment from the American Revolution up to the Progressive Era, uh, the early 1900s, was a regime of property rights. Pollution was thought of as a trespass, uh, and uh, pollution issues were dealt with in common law courts, just as any other trespass was. And So, in other words, if you were a farmer and you felt that a factory owner upstream was polluting the river that, or the, the stream that you were using to irrigate your crops or something to that effect, you would have a, uh, a common law action against the polluter. You'd argue he's violating my property rights, he's doing damage to my property with this pollution, and you wanted compensation. Now, of course, not all these disputes uh, ended up in court. You might have uh, polluters who would make contracts with people uh, who were affected by their pollution. In other words, you have a situation where I, as the polluter, would pay you as the person being polluted a certain amount of money a year, and you would accept it, and thus you'd have a contract for disposing my waste on your property, and there was no action. But when those contracts were not 
executed, uh, the, the injured party could go to court and, uh, and get damages from the polluter or even get a judge to shut down the polluting activity. Well, that was the way we dealt with environmental issues. There were no, uh, for the most part, there were no outstanding laws regulating uh, emissions. It was just dealt with in the courts. Now, that regime fell away in the progressive era. The- uh, wait, Jerry, can I ask just one sure. question, just terminology? Can you elaborate on what common law is? Because I don't think it's a term that's unfortunately in, in common use today. We think of either regulation or there's no law. Well, common law came from England, and the uh, idea was that uh, it was understood by all people that people had rights to property as free Englishmen, and uh, that they had a right to have their property protected from damage from others. And instead of running to the parliament or asking politicians or uh, members of parliament in England uh, to determine how much damage was, uh, was okay in the public interest and how much damage was not okay in the public interest, uh, these issues were dealt in courts, and uh, they were uh, they were not uh, dealt with by citing uh, statutes or, uh, or or laws on the books. Uh, they were dealt with informally under under common law. And common law is just this you know this this legal concept that people have rights to property, have right to have their property protected. That's one aspect of common law, anyway. So they were dealt with individually by judges under those understandings. Now, as opposed to a chaotic regime of uh, of episodic rulings from judges, which might differ, precedent would would uh, would occur. Uh, it's not as if uh, somebody who is downwind, say, of a of, of a uh, power uh, plant or something like that, or a, a mill owner or something like that, was the only person who ever had cause of action. So you have bodies of precedent which would uh, determine how much pollution was de minimis, you know, too, too small to worry about, and how much crossed the threshold of which a court or a judge might be properly motivated to enjoin the uh, trespass. And so these things uh, arose organically and informally in common law. And that's how the United States also dealt with pollution right up until around the Progressive Era. And the reason we moved from a regime in which pollution was dealt with by common law into a regime in which pollution was dealt with by legislation, according to Al Horwitz, who wrote a uh, book on this topic, is that uh, industrialists and manufacturers argued that common law protections of property uh, were unduly constrictive, that they were uh, restricting the ability of uh, manufacturers and industry to uh, produce for the public good and to uh, expand the economy and create jobs. And they argued that we needed legislation so that we could balance the interests of property owners against the interests of manufacturers uh, to get the right balance for the public interest. And so we didn't abandon the property rights regime because it didn't work in protecting property. We abandoned the property rights regime because arguably it was too con- uh, restrictive uh, for polluters to deal with. And so the progressive era entered into a world in which judges didn't determine uh, to what ex- uh, if property was damaged and then if it was what to do about it. Legislatures decided how much property damage was okay and how much was not okay. And that new regime of the progressive era liberalized pollution laws a bit, or at least liberalized the ability of manufacturers and industrialists to produce without having to uh, face uh, reaction uh, and, uh, and challenges from those who were polluted. And so, can, you, can you give a sense of what one of those uh, laws would have looked like, and because it seems like it still differs. It seems like it's still a pretty clear law. It's just is it's maybe I'm misinterpreting, but is it saying in effect we're read we think the way they the common law um, and the courts are defining property rights is wrong, or it's it's not properly balancing the rights. So here's a new protection of rights, or is it something where 
you know, today they empower a whole just agency and say, hey, you deal with it and you, you protect the common. I guess, is it still, is there still an idea of rights or is it just completely common good, you know, whatever? When the legislature passes law, the implicit understanding is that property rights have been abandoned and ceded to the state. And there's a very good uh, contemporary example of this tension in uh, right to farm laws. Uh, many states, which have uh, a lot of agricultural uh, uh, production, have right-to-farm laws, which uh, give the, uh, uh, the farmer the right to undertake operations without uh, facing challenges from those who are injured by, by their farming. Actually, you might think, well, who would be injured by a farmer? Well, I, I grew up in Iowa, so I can tell you one great example is hog farming. Hog farming, it produces tremendous amounts of, uh, you know, paint peeling odor that is just <laughs> stunningly difficult to tolerate. If you're a pig farmer, you get pretty used to it. But if you're a homeowner, maybe a mile or two downwind of a hog farm, it can be pretty darn bad. Uh, right to farm laws protect the hog farmer from actions from those who might complain about the order from his hog operations. Uh, and if you wanted to sue the hog farmer, if you're a homeowner and a hog farmer, you know, uh, expands operations and what became a very trivial matter all of a sudden becomes a very major nuisance who had no cause of action. Uh, Environmentalists have increasingly challenged right to farm laws based on, you know, property rights and trespass and nuisance and all that. Hog farmers would say, look, we got a law that protects us from this sort of thing. Uh, And the injured party said, well, then, you know, the common law has not been explicitly overruled and still is in play. Different states have, uh, and different judges have dealt with this in different fashions. For the most part, the right to farm laws have stood. But this is a classic example of how legislation uh, plays into role. In, in, in another, in another hog, you know, another agricultural instance of this, are uh, farmers who uh, have to comply with Clean Water Act permits for discharge. If they comply with the Clean Water Act and the various state and local laws regarding dis- with, regarding agricultural discharge, then they're legally fine. Yet environmentalists have increasingly decided to challenge uh, uh, farmers and hog, op- you know, hog and livestock operations, uh, even though they were not violating the Clean Water Act, but they were still putting in so much discharge in the waterways, they're doing damage to people, uh, uh, you know, third parties uh, in, the, in, in the community. And the environmentalist challenge had been that, well, the Clean Water Act may not be violated here, but you're still violating the property rights of others under common law. This is a trespass. Uh, at, the, at the very least, it's a nuisance and uh, arguably a significant trespass where property damage has been done and that we still should have a cause of action in common law courts against the uh, agricultural actor. For the most part, again, these suits are very problematic because judges who've looked at these challenges tend to, tend to uh, rule that once a statute has been uh, put in place, the community has decided, is essentially national, <laughs> the community has appropriated the property rights at issue, and, uh, and it's the community that will adjudicate how much pollution is allowed, not the private property owner. And so, when you, so the, the takeaway point here is when you pass legislation establishing pollution standards, what you've essentially done is taken the property from the individual party, the individual person, and made it a community issue. In other words, no longer a common law court's going to deal with this. We, as the community, as the legislature, will decide how much pollution is okay and how much is not okay. And that was the regime from the progressive era uh, forward. I don't. I guess I don't see how I, I can see how that is is how it was construed. But it seems like there would be instances in which it would be important for the for the government to define 
rights. I mean, what, what I'm thinking of something as straightforward as, you know, the different classifications of rights violations involved in someone being killed. And I don't, I don't know, like, who, I guess, who defines that where, but if, if the federal government says, okay, this is, this is the policy. It seems like that's it's defining the rights, but it, that seems different from uh, appropriating them in the way that, say, I don't know, the Endangered Species Act. Essentially, you can be kicked off your property if there's a snail darter. Um, then you you essentially have no rights. Whereas there's an issue of defining rights, and it seems legitimate. It seems like there could be one as it's defined by a more central governmental body, and the other it's defined by the courts, but both seem like they could be consistent with the idea of rights. Well, I'm just describing the law and the evolution of laws that exist. I'm not making an argument for or against. Okay, okay. I just wanted to, yeah, that, that makes sense. We can have that discussion if you like, but I'm just describing the... No, 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 uh, definitely not. No, no. so, yeah, so continue on that. I just wanted to make clear for uh, just myself that um, um, those distinctions. Okay, great. So the next step then. Well, that was the and uh, so anyway, uh, in the progressive era, we had this new regime where individual property rights were essentially taken by the government. The government decides how much pollution is tolerable or not tolerable through legislative means. Right? People would pass statutes and this sort of thing. These were mostly state and local. In fact, they were entirely state and local matters of concern up till around 1970, when the Clean Air Act and then subsequently the Clean Water Act under environmental legislation took that uh, regulatory power away from increasingly away from the state and local governments and invested it in Washington. The, uh, the argument, the popular argument, was that uh, we needed to federalize environmental law because state and local governments had done a poor job in policing the environment. <laughs> the argument was that there was a race to the bottom dynamic going on. State and local governments were competing to attract business and create jobs, and that competition lower, and tended to lower environmental standards. And so all of us would be better off, so went the argument, if these decisions were made in Washington. The reality is somewhat different. Um, David Schoenbrod, who uh, used to be a, uh, the senior air attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council, who also worked on Hubert Humphrey's staff during that time at the Senate, uh, tells a story that's not particularly controversial, it's just one that's largely forgotten, that the Clean Air Act, which was the first of these uh, major uh, statutes to federalize what had been state and local uh, responsibility, was put in place not primarily, the driver was not primarily, uh, coming out of the environmental community first, it came out of the auto industry because laws in California were threatening to impose very, very strict tailpipes and uh, auto emissions, and the automakers couldn't beat this legislation in California. So the idea was, well, let's. <laughs> the automakers got together with uh, Clark Clifford, tried to figure out an answer, and his answer was, let's uh, let's argue for federalization and get these uh, issues out of the state legislature. And it was a way for the auto industry to head off at the pass extremely restrictive pollution control legislation coming out of the states. Uh, New York had uh, also made a stab at this. And so the main driver for federalization, even though it was sold popularly as a means of uh, getting a grip on pollution and, and succeeding where the states had failed, was actually a way of cutting off at the pass increasingly restrictive state legislation. But anyway, the Clean Air Act was passed regardless of the Clean Water Act under legislation. So today, these pollution decisions about how much pollution is, uh, uh, is tolerable versus intolerable are almost entirely decisions made by the United States Congress. But of course, they've delegated that power largely to the EPA as their decisions made by the Environmental Protection Agency. And that's the regime we have today. Um, could you drill into the Clean Air Act just to give us a sense of, of because I think it's held in most people's head as just, oh, it keeps the air clean. Um, but in terms of 
um, in terms of what it says and who enforces it and how much discretion they have? Well, the Clean Air Act, uh, as initially uh, passed by the Congress, uh, delegated to the Environmental Protection Agency the business of deciding what is a human health risk, what uh, uh, emissions constitute human health risk, and then also to the EPA to decide uh, uh, how best to enforce a uh, standard that uh, could bring the uh, risk below a threshold of uh, reasonable harm. And so, essentially, the Congress just gave it to the EPA to make all the decisions you would expect Congress to make. Now, additional uh, amendments to the Clean Air Act have, have taken away some of the power from the EPA, invested a little bit more in the Congress. So you have more specific guidelines from Congress about what is to be regulated and how it's to be regulated. But for the most part, EPA still has a tremendous amount of discretion. EPA decides whether SOX or NOx or dioxin or whatever the, uh, whatever the constituent might be is or is not a human health risk. Once they've decided whether it is or is not a human health risk, they decide that it is, then it's EPA's decision to, uh, uh, to decide at what threshold that risk is worth regulating where human health risk now arise at a significant level. And then EPA uh, is, is either given some authority with regards to how to enforce the standard, but for the most part, the Clean Air Act dictates that the EPA requires best available control technology to get the emissions below the dictated uh, threshold level. Uh, which basically means what's the best stuff off the shelf that we know uh, that can control, you know, the emissions at issue, whether we're talking socks or not, or what have you. Now, there are some exceptions to this rule, but for the most part, that's the way it goes. Now, if you're a, an environmentalist or you're a uh, uh, manufacturer, if you don't like a decision EPA's made, if you believe the EPA's used bad science to designate the nitrogen oxide as a, as a, as a pollutant, for instance, you're not, you're, you're not just, you don't, it's not that you have no powers at all. You can go to federal court and challenge EPA's decision. You can challenge EPA's decision about whether something is or is not a human health risk. You can challenge EPA's decision about the regulated threshold that's been stipulated by the agency. You can challenge the agency with regards to what is or is not best available control technology. And what this has essentially meant is that, one, almost all important environmental uh, uh, regulation is uh, born not out of Congress. It's born out of the EPA. And second, you have an endless amount of, of uh, legal wrangling about these decisions, which means that a simple dictate can take 10, 15, 20 years to play out because it's got to go through a, uh, a, a judicial ringer. And the conflicts are never-ending. And uh, essentially, you have judges dictating what environmental standards are based on these vague requirements from the United States Congress as written in the Clean Air Act. In terms of what what the EPA so if the EPA is dealing with the issue of this is a threat or this is this is a health risk and this this came up very prominently in the last couple of years with the issue of carbon dioxide but has come up with many things what how does it integrate in that calculation the health benefits of the product that it's a byproduct of so if we have I mean if we have fossil fuels this is something that's indispensable to life as we know it that you know every every feature of our healthcare economy is made cheaper and better uh, because of it how does the so I mean imagine if you took away this quote-unquote health risk everyone would die or, or large numbers of people would suffer and die how does the EPA factor in the health positive of the the products whose byproducts it's regulating with very few exceptions it doesn't uh, and it's not up to EPA. The Congress has decided that cost-benefit analysis is not appropriate here. 
So it's not as if a bunch of regulators at EPA have decided that a cost-benefit analysis of the sort you're discussing is inappropriate or anything of the kind. The Clean Air Act itself rules out cost-benefit analysis when it comes to establishing these regulations and legitimate thresholds. The EPA is directed by the Congress to establish a based on the best science available uh, regarding whether a constituent is or is not a human health risk. Once they've determined a constituent is a human health risk, it's then EPA's responsibility, according to the Act, to establish a legal threshold below which, if it's met, human health risks do not appear. And so EPA is, somewhat, is, is, is largely hamstrung by the Clean Air Act. It's not up to the EPA. Congress has made that dictate. Now, there are a few exceptions where cost-benefit analysis is ruled into the game, but those exceptions are specific to a particular regulatory authority given to the agency. For the most part, cost-benefit analysis is not something the EPA is allowed to do. Yeah, I really appreciate that point. I think it's it's helpful in general to make these distinctions about who exactly is wielding the power over whom. I think particularly among conservatives, the EPA is an easy thing to demonize. And, and I certainly regard it as a demon in many ways, but in, in uh, but it's relevant that the Congress creates and endorses the demon and that it has, if you object to certain things EPA does, it, as you're saying, in part, it is, if you think, well, it's completely taking these health issues out of context, well, it seems like legally it's required to drop the positive context uh, of anything. So I think hopefully people will take note of this and know that in many cases we have to direct our focus toward uh, toward Congress, not simply criticize regulators, which is usually rhetorically a bit easier. Well, yeah, a classic example of this is the... Uh the so-called UMAC regulations, which have become MATS, that's the new acronym for the UMAC regulations that came out of the Clean Air Act recently in the Obama administration. Uh, just to quickly summarize, the uh, MATS or UMAC regulations are regulations that apply to uh, major industrial operations as well, to a lot of uh, uh, electricity generators, to regulate the amount of uh, toxic air emissions uh, that come out of the facility. Uh, this is particularly appropriate to coal-fired power plants, but also other manufacturers. Uh, the Obama EPA issued regulations uh, last year that were estimated to cost at around $10 billion a year to comply with. They are the largest, most costly regulations that have been issued by the, uh, by the Obama administration that year. One of the most costly series of regulations ever proposed by the EPA. And conservatives, uh, to say the least, didn't particularly care for the regulations and argued the Obama administration was undertaking a regulatory wilding. But if you think back, if you, if you know the history of this, it, it, there's a little bit different picture here. Uh, EPA was directed to issue these regulations as part of the uh, Air Act amendments, which were passed in the first Bush administration back in the 1990s. I believe it was 1992. So the 1992 amendments to the Clean Air Act required EPA to issue these regulations. Now, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, never got around to getting the regulations out the door. Uh, the Clinton administration then proposed a series or then drafted a series of regulations which um, which never went into effect. It took them a long time because they had a lot of legal hurdles to uh, jump. The second Bush administration that comes into play doesn't like the uh, near final rules that were being drafted by the Clinton administration, redrafted its own series of rules which were more industry friendly. They argued internally that the Clinton rules that were underway, that were not yet released but were uh, nearly ready for public release, were too costly and, uh, and, 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 uh, and environmentally unnecessary. So anyway, the second Bush administration releases its proposed rules. 
environmentalist go berserk. They go in front of a federal judge and say these rules are not restrictive enough. They violate the, the uh, stipulations of the Clean Air Act. Federal judge agrees, and he throws out the Bush administration rules. The Bush administration then tries to craft another set of rules, but it's very hard to craft a reasonable set of rules given that judicial order. The, the Obama administration now comes into office. It inherits this mess, um, and they issue a series of uh, – they craft a series of rules to comply with the, uh, with the federal judge. And uh, they sign a, a consent decree with environmentalists and state attorneys generals, which had previously sued the Bush administration over these same rules. So the, the, uh, the upshot of all this is that the rules that the consumers are screaming a bloody murder about were rules which were largely dictated by a federal judge. And they were rules that were, for the most part, outside of the Obama administration's ability to affect. Now, that's, of course, the Obama administration could have signed a somewhat different consent decree. They do have some flexibility here. We shouldn't kid ourselves. But the bottom line is the more industry-friendly regulation, or, of course, the conservative uh, the, the implied conservative position that there should be no regulations of this nature. That's not, that's not even possibly in play. The Clean Air Act of 1992 demanded these regulations, and when a soft, a kinder, gentler version of these regulations were put into motion, they were thrown out by a federal court. So who do you blame for this? Well, you can blame the Obama administration for the particular nature of the, of the consent decree they signed, because, of course, they didn't have to sign that particular consent decree. But for the most part, it, uh, strict rules on air toxic uh, emissions, if you want to blame somebody, you blame the Congress of the 1990s. Uh, you don't blame the, the, the President Obama administration or the Obama EPA. The problem lies with Congress. All right. So, yeah, this uh, – I really like this this point of just, again, being really clear about, in effect, the causality uh, of these things and not just seeking out easy targets because, again, I, I think it's just – rhetorically for for both commentators and for politicians in particular just blasting regulators again whom I'm happy to blast more than happy is can be a scapegoat and can be a diversion from the proper thing I think which is to really articulate what should policy be so I want to I want to move to that and and we'll stick with the clean air act if you could repeal the clean air act and write a new one what would it be and what would be its key differences with the existing legislation? Well, of course, what, 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 what the Clean Air Act would look like in my world is one which we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, uh, stipulate as a world that doesn't have to worry about political realities, is my preference. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think there's a very strong argument for, the clean, for eliminating the Clean Air Act, hook line, just across the board and being done with it. Uh, the, the reason I argued for that is not that I don't believe in uh, regulation to protect air quality, because I do, or at least I do believe that it is, a, uh, uh, is within the uh, uh, legitimate powers of government to police the public commons and airsheds. But the conceit that state and local governments are incapable of doing this job, and only the EPA can do this job reasonably, I think is belied by historical experience. Remember, as I described to you, uh, the world uh, of 1970, where the Clean Air Act was passed. The Clean Air Act uh, did not produce improvements in air quality faster and more uh, expeditiously than were uh, executed prior to the Clean Air Act. If you look at the data, you find air quality was, click, was improving at a far faster rate prior to the federalization of air emissions law than it did after the federalization of air emissions law. Now, to be fair, if an environmentalist is on this line and uh, on this podcast arguing with me, he would say, well, uh, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 
they were getting low-hanging fruit, and the low-hanging fruit that the state and local governments addressed was now gone. So of course you're going to get you're going to get less and less progress as you try to get the air cleaner and cleaner. Well, there's some truth to that, but only some truth. There's not a great deal of truth. It turns out that this race to the bottom dynamic that environmentalists cite never really happened at all. And there has been a lot of uh, uh, historical work that goes back that has really buried that. Richard Ruvez is, uh, is one such academic who's find very little evidence for this race to the bottom dynamic. David Schoenbrod, uh, the aforementioned former senior attorney at NRDC, finds very little evidence of it. We published a book at the Cato Institute by Indra Goglani, which likewise finds very little evidence of it. So I don't believe that there's any good, there's any good evidence to suggest that federal environmental law is somehow superior to state or local environmental law. In fact, I think there's a lot of good evidence to the contrary. Now, of course, if there was an environmentalist on the phone around this podcast, he'd say, well, of course, you, Jerry Tim with the Cato Institute, support state or local environmental regulation as opposed to federal regulation because you think you've got regulations you like, which are weaker environmental regulations we have it currently. I don't think that's necessarily true at all today. That might have been true 30 or 40 years ago, maybe. But today, what do we see when we uh, look at uh, environmental disputes between Washington and the state governments? We primarily see state governments suing EPA for not being aggressive enough or not acting quickly enough. It would very well mean, I think, if we were to uh, uh, decentralize environmental law, that some states would move more ambitiously against pollution, while other states might move less ambitiously against pollution. People, for instance, in Massachusetts may, may prefer cleaner air than people in Mississippi, for reasons which aren't all that hard to figure out. I mean, uh, wealthier, uh, uh, wealthier communities probably put a greater stock on environmental quality and are willing to make trade-offs with regards to environmental quality and economic activity that may not be attracted to poorer communities where the jobs are more necessary and economic growth is more important, and so they'll make different trade-offs. And the point I would make, or at least the argument I would make, is that these, these preferences with regards to environmental quality versus economic activity and uh, industrial activity are largely subjective. There's no right answer to the amount of pollution you should accept in return for economic activity. It's simply a preference. It's a, some people care about uh, caribou, some people don't. Some people would pay a lot of money to reduce risk a small bit when it comes to asthma or something else, and other people would not. Right answer here. And so given that, I would think we should let each community decide for itself what trade-offs to accept and which trade-offs to reject, except to the extent to which you have decisions made in local communities that affect other communities outside of that region. It turns out that was one of the big arguments, of course, for the Clean Air Act. Because if you just allow Ohio, for instance, to establish whatever environmental rules it wants, then the people in New Hampshire are going to have all this acid rain, and they have no say in Ohio's laws, and they're going to be injured third parties. And even if Ohio is willing to live with these deals, people in New Hampshire aren't, aren't being asked. That was the rationale for the Clean Air Act originally. It turns out that EPA has done virtually nothing to reduce cross-border air emissions. And this is something that federal, federal judges have been finding increasingly of late that the, you know, the conceit that the Clean Air Act would address that, it hasn't addressed that. Now, there are a few specific instances, for instance, the amendments in 1992, which dealt with uh, NOx emissions and thus acid rain, uh, where that has been addressed specifically. But for the most part, EPA's dodged all of its obligations here. And so where you've got major regional, cross-regional issues, where, again, coal-fired emissions in Ohio are farming, uh, you know, harming uh, forests in New Hampshire, for instance, that may be a place for Congress to act, but only in those circumstances, I think, does Congress have an argument to act. For the most part, when we're talking about, say, air toxic emissions or, uh, uh, or the emissions which lead to urban summertime smog, 
these are areas that are primarily state or local based and thus you know trade offs should be made by the uh, population being affected so that was that's how i would reform the federal the cleaner act essentially i would abolish it and only leave open uh, legislation for significant areas where regional pollution is is uh, is in play and there are a few cases like that but not very many so if we then take it to the state level because it then I mean, of course if we say the states do it, it there is some question of, of what that looks like and the way you were describing doesn't look too much like the EPA in terms of its decision making process it seems more like uh, you know it's being taken to a vote and people are saying in effect you know this this amount of SOX emissions is okay um, can you describe what it would look like uh, assuming you know, you get to make the decisions in the state. Again, not not. So now I'm a governor. Reality. Well, okay. So I've exactly. been president. Now I'll be a governor. Exactly. Um, when we're dealing with uh, uh, local pollution, I would leave it to local authorities. So, for instance, if we're dealing with, let's say I'm the governor of California, and the issue is <clears throat> air emissions and, you know, urban smog in Los Angeles or urban smog in San Francisco or urban smog in Sacramento, I would let the people of Sacramento and uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles deal with that. Now, of course, uh, smog in Los Angeles does drift to some to some modest extent, so it's not as if all of the parties outside of San Francisco or Los Angeles will be uh, immune to the decisions made by these metropolitan areas. But for the most part, the uh, the pollution standards, say, of L.A. are primarily matters for people of Los Angeles to be concerned with. The the overwhelming weight of the uh, of the emissions are being affect are affecting the people who live in LA uh, and the costs associated with complying with these emission levels in LA are primarily being affected by people who live in LA again so let the people of Los Angeles make their own determination let the people of San Francisco make their own determination let the people of Sacramento make their own determination and as governor I would argue that the state should jump in only when You've got instances where decisions are made in Los Angeles have a very major impact on third parties outside of L.A. And for the most part, again, that's not the case because the way the L.A. air basin looks, you've got a system. And the reason why you've got a lot of smog in L.A. doesn't move very easily out of the L.A. basin. It's like a little bubble. It's like a little dome. And that just does not migrate very much when it comes to at least uh, urban smog. And so I would leave it to local governments to decide. So once again, I'm going to kick it down to a level in which the people uh, who make the decisions about pollution, the people who primarily pay the costs for the pollution standard and reap the benefits from, say, a low pollution standard, and let them make the decision. Uh, again, it's based on a respect for the, uh, for the preferences of people in play, and it's an agnosticism with regards to what the right trade-offs ought to be, because people in L.A. Make diff- may make different trade-offs than people in San Francisco. They may have different preferences than people in, uh, in Sacramento. It's an interesting point about there being a certain optionality in what you um, would want with these things, depending on your context. And I can see that with a lot of things. Um, but at least two features of the EPA strike me as, as I mean, there's objectively something wrong. And one is that they don't do cost-benefit analysis, assuming this is their mandate, that they don't. I mean, that they can, because then you can just take any, I mean, then you can do it. they did with fossil fuels, in effect, and say this is a health hazard and not ignore that it's essential, uh, and, and ignore that it's essential to health. Um, but also, um, a lot of what I've seen with how they use epidemiological studies to, in effect, say that the tiniest amounts of things cause X instances of cancer, and that, 
those just seem like complete pseudoscience. It seems like something, the first one, I think they just should have to do cost-benefit analysis. And the second one, it seems, I don't know their scientific standards or lack thereof well enough, but it seems like something is just fundamentally off. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I think I disagree uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, cost-benefit analysis is a nice idea in theory, but in reality, when governments do cost-benefit analysis, it's more a, a practice of art than a practice of science. In other words, if uh, one thing that you learn quickly once you start looking at these government cost-benefit analyses is that you can make them say any darn thing you really want them to say. Depending upon what your assumptions are, depending upon how you do the analysis, you can make them sing and dance. So the idea that a, a stipulation, that a regulation should be forced to pass a cost-benefit test is simply a stipulation that the regulatory agency has to find some creative means by which to, to rig the test. And uh, there, there's, there are a number of different instances of this sort of thing. There's been a lot of screaming amongst uh, academics about, for instance, the cost-benefit analyses that have been offered by the EPA to justify the Clean Air Act. Uh, on separate occasions, the uh, Congress has asked the EPA to publish cost-benefit analyses with regards to these regulations, not as, a, not as a prerequisite for issuing the regulation, but just to better inform the Congress about whether these regulations have historically proven worth it or not. So we have a number of instances where government does do cost-benefit analysis work, but those, uh, that work is tremendously controversial, and it's not obvious that they are always rigged and they're always ridiculous analyses, but the point here is that uh, finding an accepted standard by which to undertake these examinations is virtually impossible, and thus they can be made to produce anything you want. So if you have a government, so and the point I'm trying to make is that I don't believe a cost-benefit standard is going to necessarily, in fact, it's unlikely to stop bad regulation or excessively costly regulation. And in fact, it may, may make the problem more difficult for people who don't like aggressive environmental rules because the EPA or other regulatory agencies can issue the rules and then say, oh, and look, they produce far more benefits than costs, so, that, so thou shalt zip it <laughs> and accept good regulation. Uh, right now, they don't necessarily have that ability because cost-benefit rate analysis is, uh, is not generally part of what they do. But if it was part but of what they do, they the, might have better arguments. How is this uh, – so uh, that makes total sense to me in terms of how this would, would be abused as, as most instances of things like the common good are abused. I'm just curious how it's – I mean, today seems like the worst because it's just – only one side of the ledger is marked, and it's often completely inflated. So it doesn't. It seems hard to imagine anything worse than that. Well, my point is that the cost-benefit analysis isn't going to stop any of that. Now, it, it, there are cost-benefit analyses that have been performed on all of these regulations by third parties. Cost-benefit analyses are published by academics and by industry and by environmentalists to justify their what they wish the EPA would do, even if the EPA is not required and, in fact, is, is, uh, is specifically prohibited from using the cost-benefit analyses. The cost-benefit analyses tend to be important parts of the, or at least persuasive arguments when it comes to uh, what judges decide in the, in the judicial sphere. And the reason for that, even though the regulations prohibit cost-benefit analysis, is that if you accept it on face what the Congress has told EPA to do, you virtually shut down industry. I mean, in other words, the whole, tr the whole game is uh, in the regulatory arena is what is or is not a significant human health risk. It, which is never defined. And so oftentimes, even though the EPA is prohibited from using cost-benefit analyses in its regulation, it privately uses cost-benefit analyses and might offer them, as will uh, uh, people in federal court, 
to justify their arguments for where the threshold ought to be for uh, ambient air or water concentrations. And so the cost-benefit analyses are out there. It's not that they aren't, and you don't need a federal law to require them to be undertaken. They are undertaken. And you could argue that it's best that they're undertaken by people outside of the agency anyway. They're more likely to be uh, uh, drafted in a way that isn't to uh, buttress what the agency wants to do anyway. But, of course, environmentalists who do cost-benefit analyses are probably going to produce them, which justify the regulations. And industry which produces them will largely be uh, designed to you know, issue uh, answers to, uh, to judges and to the public at large to, to argue against the regulations. And so we can, as independent experts, look at these various cost-benefit analyses and say, see which ones make some more sense than others. But the point here is that the cost-benefit analyses haven't done very much. But put that aside for a second. I don't want to dwell too much on that. There's a, there's a stronger argument, I think, here, which is even if we could get strong cost-benefit analyses, I'm not entirely sure they ought to dictate uh, environmental standards. And the reason I say that is uh, it's, it tracks back to uh, a series of articles we published at the Cato Institute where we've argued that if it is true that environmental preferences are subjective, in other words, if I tell you that dioxin in the air in Los Angeles is going to cause a 1 in 500,000 health risk over the course of your life uh, as far as getting cancer is concerned, how should you feel about that? Well, some people might say, I don't really care. That's in order, several orders of magnitude beyond the risk of a meteor destroying the earth. And other people might say, look, 1 in 500,000, eh, that seems a little high to me. How much would I have to pay to reduce that risk? Oh, $10 a year? I'll pay that just to reduce that risk because there are a lot of 1 in 500,000 risks out there. And if we can address several of them all at once, we can get uh, significant rates of, uh, of, uh, of risk that, or, or risk exposure that I'm comfortable with. There's no right or wrong answer to that. It's the same thing if I tell you that smoking a pack of Marlboros a day will give you a 1 in 10 chance or a 1 in 5 chance of getting lung cancer. What do you do with that? Some people will smoke Marlboros anyway, and so the pleasure outweighs the risk, and other people will look at you like you're insane, and there's no reason to undertake that. Or what about breast implants? 1 in 20,000 chance of rupture and causing problems. Should that be enough to ban the, uh, the uh, breast implant? Well, some people wouldn't take the risk, and other people would. The point I'm trying to make here is that risk preferences are subjective, and willingness to pay to reduce risk is likewise subjective. And if that's the case, then cost-benefit analysis can't determine anything for you. Some people will look at, these, uh, at the uh, benefits and consider them de minimis, and others will look at the benefits and see them as significant, and there's no particular answer since these are subjective matters. What is significant to you is not significant to me and vice versa. Likewise, what's a significant payment to reduce risk to you might be different than it is for me. So experts can't really settle this matter for us. And cost-benefit analysis is the conceit that with, uh, with, uh, with good calculations, good economists, and good math, we can determine the exact right trade-offs between pollution and, say, human health. And you can't. You simply cannot. And that's why I'm not, I'm not sure the cost-benefit analysis can do anything except better inform our decisions. But I don't think they should be able to dictate our decisions. Yeah, and I, uh, it's funny because I, I don't think I've ever even uh, tentatively advocated the government doing any cost-benefit analysis before. Here it just struck me because the, the EPA's mandate, I think, is so bad uh, with the Clean Air Act. It's definitely, I mean, nothing, I mean, that's... I, I didn't consider an ideal. These are, are good points. The thing that strikes me, though, about the um, the subjective or the optionality issue with the individual is that there are, I mean, there there are instances where you know you know the risks, and then you have your own. It, this is just kind of a, a standard Austrian point that you know you can't tell what everyone's value 
scale is. That that makes total sense. Um, but what about issues where there's just flat out pseudoscience involved? I mean, that's there's an issue where people are just uh, are wrong. Or for instance, where um, oh, and there's a very good example of this that I can give you. There are a lot of people who worry about um, uh, bioengineered foods. Uh, and, uh, and I, I know many of them. And if you're worried about them, you might go to Whole Foods and try to buy produce and, uh, and foodstuffs, which have guarantees that no bioengineering was undertaken uh, in the production of this or that food. Uh, it may be silly, and I think the you know, concerns about bioengineered and frankenfoods and that sort of thing are completely silly. But in a free society, you ought to have a right to not eat, you know, to, to eat foods which haven't been bioengineered if you want to. And if so, if you want to go to Whole Foods and spend extra money to uh, avoid bioengineered foods, well, God bless. It's a free country. If you want to jog with uh, power crystals on your neck because you think that gives you extra energy and a good vibe and you believe in new age stuff, it's a free country. You can believe whatever silly things you want. If you want to have food that hasn't been radiated uh, and somebody wants to market to you, even though there's no real reason to worry about food or radiation, so be it. If you believe organic food is healthier for you, which we have no evidence for this whatsoever, you may like organic food because it tastes better, even though I think in most cases that's also rather silly. But if you want to pay extra money for organic food, we know there's a big market for that. And John Mackey, a, you know, a libertarian fellow who runs Whole Foods, has made a lot of money selling organic food to people who want to buy it. So what do we do if we say, well, but we know that these things are, these preferences are ridiculous. They don't pass scientific muster. Or at least we could say at the very least, there's not persuasive scientific evidence to suggest that eating organic foods is you know, more nutritious for you or reduces health risks in any way. Well, in a free society, I don't think those, uh, those insights should govern anything. To be what, okay, what, what, I mean, private good consumption, people ought to have a right to whatever silly beliefs they want. For sure. I mean, those are those have in common that those are instances of you making a consumption choice that right. is, you know, completely voluntary interaction. There's a difference between that and EPA or even a majority vote. That's an excellent point. CO two emissions. That's an excellent point. And when you're dealing with the private, co- when you're dealing with private goods, where the decision is largely to 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 uh, to pay to reduce risk or to consume a product is largely yours and not affecting anybody else. It's an easy rule for us to live by, right? You can have whatever silly beliefs you want about uh, organic foods or whatnot. It doesn't really matter whether I think they're silly or not. Uh, you should be able to uh, secure your preferences. But when you're dealing with the public commons, then the issue becomes stickier, as you say. So what do you do when it comes to, say, uh, air pollution in Los Angeles? Again, if I was both the president of the United States and the governor of California, we're going to vest the decision about air pollution levels in L.A. to the people of L.A. So what happens if the people of L.A. have preferences for clean air that can't be scientifically backed up? I would say, so what? People in L.A. can make whatever decisions they want, whatever trade-offs they want, because they're the ones who are paying the price, and they're the ones who are gaining the benefits, as it were. Now, sound science will invariably inform, to some extent, this debate. But let's assume, for instance, people in Los Angeles wanted cleaner air in L.A., even though there was no evidence whatsoever it did anything to reduce asthma or anything of the kind. They just preferred cleaner air. They were willing to spend an extra $200 a year of lost income or something to that effect, just so they could see better. What would we say about that? Say well, that's their that that no, but that's that's real. LA want, and that's then let the people of LA have that. They're the ones who are paying the price for it. But I mean, to take a real example, I mean, to take the current example of Schwarzenegger and what he's done, you know, to our energy in California. I mean, there's something that is, you know, there's CO2 emissions, which I mean, that's not making it easier to see. That's not it does absolutely nothing 
for us, and yet it's it's imposed. I mean, there's two. You can say so what in the sense of well, this is the process and it's their decision. But I wouldn't say so what for the 49 percent of us that feel like we're getting our rights violated. I mean, I don't support well, that. Well, if, I mean, if I you believe that the preferences of regard, like, again, we'll, if you want, we'll move this discussion away from, say, air pollution in LA, the urban smog issue I was kind of alluding to, to climate change, because this is, you can just as easily have the conversation there. In climate change, I think most economists who are, who've studied the issue and most of the academic literature is fairly clear on this, what we think will follow from climate change, given the best state of science, is a relative non-event. It's nothing that uh, is going to impose significant costs on society. It's something the economy can easily adapt to. That's given what we know and given best knowledge. But there are a lot of uncertainties, extreme scenarios out there, low probability, high impact events, where we don't know a great deal, and it's not clear what might follow. For example, uh, it is quite possible that a warming climate could change the direction of the Gulf Stream and have major impact or, or melt uh, 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 methane hydrates from the bottom of the sea and which could then bubble up and have catastrophic impacts. These are very low probability events, maybe half a percent chance of such a thing happening or a quarter of a percent chance of something like that. But if they do occur, would have huge costs. Uh, they could indeed lead to semi, you know, quasi-apocalyptic scenarios that, envir- that keep environmentalists awake at night. And if you ask scientists, what are the chances that methane hydrates may uh, migrate into the atmosphere as a, as a consequence of climate change 120 years from now. They'd say, well, we don't really know a great deal about this based on what we know. We don't think it's very likely, but there's a lot of science we don't know. And, and this is one answer we cannot, or this is one problem we cannot wrestle with as intelligently as we can, you know, some of the more mundane things that we wrestle with in, in, uh, in earth sciences. So what do you do about not risk? Because we don't really know what the risk is of, say, methane hydrate smoke going uh, migrating to the atmosphere. We don't know what the risk is. We know there's uncertainty. We can't completely close the door to that possibility happening, but we can't embrace it as a likelihood either. So what do we do about these scenarios? How, how much are you willing to spend to reduce these low impact, these, these low probability, high impact scenarios? How would you think about them? Well, different people are going to think different ways about them. Uh, they don't particularly worry me, uh, mostly because I, for my own personal metric, mine is, will a meteor destroy the Earth? We know there's about a 1 in 20,000 chance that I might wake up tomorrow any given day and the Earth gets blasted apart, and that's the end of that. And so to me, anything more than 1 in 20,000 is probably not worth worrying a great deal about. But other people do indeed worry about things demonstrably in markets. We observe human behavior to avoid risks that are far beyond 1 in 20,000 lifetime risk. So... In these scenarios, I don't really have a good answer. And given that, I don't think it is outrageous to allow, to allow people to make the decisions for themselves about how much they're willing to pay to reduce these low-impact, excuse me, low-probability, high-impact scenarios. Now, we know, well, at least we can intuit, given voter behavior today, that the willingness to pay to reduce these impacts is pretty low. I mean, we have a lot of survey work, and we have a lot of public opinion surveys, and we've got voter behavior to suggest that most people don't really care a great deal about climate change, despite what they tell pollsters when they're asked, do you worry about it or do you not worry about it? They always say they do, but then when you ask how much you're willing to pay to reduce the risk, it's usually something like no more than $10 a month, usually a dollar a month or something like that, or they pay nothing at all. So we know they don't worry a great deal about this, so I don't have to get too worked up about crazy mob democracy somehow bringing us into a pastoral world circa 1854. But it's not ridiculous for people to worry about it, and I don't think that it's necessarily a a bad thing when we're dealing with the public commons 
to allow majority preferences in this regard to gain. Now, environmentalists may not like that today because majority preferences prohibit or would probably block ambitious uh, action to reduce these low, uh, uh, low probability, high impact scenarios. But I could imagine a world in which that might be different. All right. Well, you just raised uh, many interesting issues. I might uh, deal with some of them in the in the closing, but I want to. Um, we got to wrap up, so I want to ask you just one more quick question, which is, what do you think? Uh, you know, f- take us, the audience, as just citizens. What's the one thing they can do to promote a uh, better energy policy, or, or you know, more energy growth in this country? Well, primarily promote free markets. But before I get into that, I want to return to what I just said. There's one thing I want to add to it, which I think might provide an interesting twist for you and your listeners, is to note that these, these matters of how to think about low-probability, high-impact scenarios aren't just environmental issues. They pop up everywhere. And oftentimes people think about them differently depending upon the context. So, so for instance, what about the low-probability, high-impact scenario of Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? We weren't sure whether he had them. We thought there was a low probability that he would ever have weapons of mass destruction that could truly incinerate Washington or New York or something to that effect, and even a much lower chance that he might use them. But the possibility is very real. And you can think about this in context with Iran and elsewhere. So how do we feel about low probability, high impact risks that come outside of the environmental arena? It turns out that if you ask environmentalists how you feel about low probability, high impact scenarios in foreign policy, they tend not to worry about them. But when they come up in the environmental context, they worry about them a great deal. And when you talk to concerns about the low impact, excuse me, low probability, high impact scenarios in the environment, they don't worry much about them. But you see those same low probability, high impact scenarios in foreign policy uh, aggravating conservatives to no end, and they beat the drums for public to do something about it. To me, this is just an absolute mystery. Why is it that the same set of risks with the same implications are thought of so differently depending upon what policy arena they pop up into? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think it. Well, well, well I, I see. I guess. I mean, you can file a lot of things under low risk. I mean, that's kind of a catch-all in terms of low, and, and particularly from whatever perspective. So, if you take like a foreign policy thing, there. Um, I mean, leaving aside my own views, there's a certain view of of a definite plausible causal chain with Iran and you know the entire uh, you know Islamic totalitarian movement or what have you that you know is, is a real like involves known dynamics like known causal dynamics uh, and, and in I foreign can do policy generally for, for methane hydrate or, uh, migrating the atmosphere but, but for climate change that's much, plausible but with much less but, happen, but there's but no precedent of it, I mean, with at least with with foreign, I mean, I guess obviously I favor one set of causal chains versus another. I mean, with one, there's 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 at least the, we have a whole human history of people going to war, not going to war, threatening the ability to analyze that, draw causal connections, uh, etc. With we have no historical example of human beings doing X and then the entire system going out of whack and incinerating. Uh, everyone and, and there's there's an enormous I mean the entire I mean all of these are incredibly speculative in the sense of there is no there's no one in the field who can actually predict the future in any meaningful way let alone the amount you would need so in in that sense I mean it would be just as plausible or more plausible to say well you know if you do ban fossil fuels in the way you do you're actually discovering a client you're actually going to stop a climate manipulating technology that would give us a five times better climate like i regard that as more plausible but you come up with these 
are you can come up with arbitrary possibilities forever and i think ideologically people tend to favor arbitrary possibilities that are ideologically convenient but i still think you can distinguish between some of these which have legitimacy and some of which are are but note, but note that what arbitrary. you but note what you think is legitimate or arbitrary is pretty subjective in other words if i if i were to ask you what are the risks that say iran would produce a weapon of mass destruction and then a delivery system to get it to the united states and then an, a political decision to actually use it we don't know I don't know what the risk is. Is it one in 500, one in 1,000, one in 10,000, one in 100,000? I don't know. I don't know what the risk We don't know enough to tell you what the risk is. Similarly, if I were to ask you what is the risk that 150 years ago, 150 years from now, global warming would lead to uh, methane hydrates migrating the atmosphere? Is it one in 100, one in 5,000, one in 100,000, one in a million, one in 10 million? Don't know. We don't know the risk here either. And so... You may, we all have our own, you know, set of judgments about this. Well, some people are more worried about one than the other based on this or that, but they're not, they're not testable matters and they're not provable matters. And we just, we don't know. And that's the point I'm trying to make. We don't, if when, in a world in which we don't know what the risks truly are because of uncertainty, how you think about dealing with these uncertain scenarios and how much you're willing to pay to reduce the risk from these uncertain scenarios tends to be less a matter of you know, scientific judgment or economic analysis or smart calculation than it is about, you know, how are you hardwired? What are you worried about? What motivates you? How risk averse are you? How willing to pay are you? Are you just for whatever reason more worried about this risk than that risk? These tend to be almost personality matters with no correct answers. And that's the point I'm trying to make. And most people, I don't think, quite realize that the metrics they use in one policy arena don't very well match up with the metrics they might use in another policy arena. I agree, but I still think there's a, I mean, I think you can make distinction between something that's essentially arbitrary and something that there's a, you know, some real possibility. So if I were to say, okay, in the next 10 years, Jerry Taylor is going to get offered some, you know, government position or some major government advisory position that that has a lot more causality connected to it than the methane hydrate although we have no idea at least i don't um me looking outside in i have no idea like what even the order of magnitude is but it there's something that that has a certain plausibility to it where things like that have happened there are certain you know you have a certain stature etc etc you have to remember this the argument that there's no precedent for it is fairly weak because we've never run an we've never run an experiment in history in which we had a major industrial civilization emitting this amount of greenhouse gases so we don't have any real precedent to look back on the fact that it didn't happen in 1720 is immaterial there was no similar situation in 1720 this is the first time that doesn't make it it doesn't make it more difficult to envision or anything of the kind. It's just an acknowledgement we've never been there. Similarly, uh, how many experiences in the past, how many times in the past, or how much, how much historical experience do we have with small third-world political actors with weapons of mass destruction and delivery systems to use them? Pretty new. You know, it's, this is only the, only the last couple of decades have we seen these technologies in the hands of uh, parties outside of the United States and then the Soviet Union and, and as major allies. So once again, we don't know. These are relatively unprecedented situations. Um, okay, well, the, I mean, th- this could go on for a but I want to just um, end with the, the thing I mentioned uh, before of just what, I mean, you said promote free markets. Um, can you, you just put any more meat on that well, for, for it, the individual? Well, it, it, what free markets do is they produce energy at the lowest cost 
for 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 uh, human use. And if you believe in cheap energy, most people, if you say, raise your hand if you want energy prices as low as possible, most people raise their hand and say, yeah, I don't want to pay more for energy than I should have to pay. Well, markets will produce low-cost energy for you. The lower the cost of your uh, energy production, the more profit you get to make when you sell in the market. So markets will produce low-cost energy. Now, there's a caveat to this, of course. If the price uh, mechanism is incorporating all costs, that's true. An environmentalist, of course, would argue, well, it doesn't because damages done by energy consumption are not internalized in the price unless the prices aren't true reflections of what is or is not low cost. And so we want to address that externality somehow in the pricing mechanism. I don't have any principal objection with that observation, by the way, but I think there are ways of addressing it that are superior to the ways in which we go about it now. But with that with that asterisk being, you know, uh, put in place and accepted, the general observation rules that if you leave these decisions to the market, and if the pricing mechanism is allowed to work uh, as uh, intended, we don't need government policy to produce low-cost energy or abundant energy. We're going to, and after all, prices represent things. They represent the relative abundance of something relative to demand. That's what prices do. They they are they are they are measures they are metrics of scarcity. Uh, relative scarcity. And so if, if your proposition is that we should use the least scarce, cheapest sources of energy first, rather than going to more scarce, more expensive sources of energy, well, that's what markets will do for it. If you leave these decisions to government, which is what uh, some conservatives would have you do, and what Barack Obama clearly wants you to do, then we have decisions about energy use and consumption that are made by politicians and not by market actors, not by producers and not by consumers. And when politicians make decisions about what kind of energy to use more often, or, or how to use it, more often than not, they're making decisions that are designed to maximize political capital for them. And so ethanol might make no damn sense whatsoever to many people. In fact, it doesn't. And economists and scientists who look at ethanol find just virtually no merits to ethanol whatsoever, even from an environmental perspective. But makes a lot of sense for a politician who wants to be president because he's got to navigate the Iowa caucuses. And it makes, it makes sense to congressmen and senators who even don't intend to run for president because they need to log roll and trade votes with the guy who represents Iowa. And if you trade your vote for uh, ethanol, you might be able to buy his vote on something else. And you do a little log rolling that way. And so for reasons like this, political, political decisions about energy are almost never based on the merits of the energy issue in question, but based on the merits of the politics of the decision. And only by the sheerest of coincidences will a decision about uh, the politics of the relative merits of uh, the political merits of an energy source line up with the economic or environmental merits of an energy source. That's why I think you need to leave these things to government, to, excuse me, to the market. All right, and finally, where can uh, people find more of your work? Well, it's pretty easy. We have a website at the Cato Institute, www.cato.org, and if you click on the Experts tab on our front page and you click on my name, uh, you will see a, uh, a bio and then a long list of publications, and you'll be able to read to your heart's content, and hopefully happily so. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I've done it myself. It's it's fun stuff. Jerry, thanks so much uh, for the uh, very informative and, and uh, rousing interview. Oh, well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate being on your program. All right. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again to Jerry Taylor for coming on the show. Uh, Obviously, as you can tell, a very smart guy. And uh, one thing I really appreciate about him is that he is just super, super well-informed about uh, many details uh, of the issues. So it's always great to have someone like that on the show. Now, as you could probably tell from the discussion, there were a couple of points uh, of disagreement 
that we had, or at least interesting uh, debates that came up. And I wanted to share some of my own views uh, on the subject. And I was also talking to uh, Eric Dennis, who works with us, a physicist, but also economics expert. And uh, he has a lot of background on some of the issues. So I thought I'd bring him on for a few minutes and, uh, to talk about a couple of the questions raised, and then I'll uh, elaborate um, on some of my own views. So, uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Glad to join. All right, let's. I want to talk about two issues, both of which come under the issue of subjective versus objective. Now, one of the issues was that um, that pollution standards should be almost exclusively voted on by by local majorities on the idea that, well, since they're quote they are the ones you know suffering the the damage or the benefit, they should be the ones uh, to make that decision. Uh, What's your take on that? Well, it's it's certainly better. <coughs> excuse me. It's certainly better to have uh, a smaller, more local population of people doing the voting. However, the the fundamental question is the same: um, Why should my rights be dependent on the gro- on the vote of any group of people? And if uh, a a national majority is capable of making uh, mistakes in how they vote um, for uh, you know a, a, a small local minority. That's true of a, a smaller local unit. It can also make mistakes for for individuals. Um, so it's not it's not really clear that that's a fundamental uh, fundamental resolution to the problem. Simply to delimit the size of the the majority that has control over you. Well, you mentioned violating rights, but I think part of the idea is that the that there's a certain agnosticism as to the existence of any particular right with regard to pollution. So if, if the majority decides that um, some bogus cancer risk is there, that's its subjective preference. And even if it, if it just makes it feel better, then that, you know, that's okay. And there's nothing to, we have nothing to say about, you know, nothing should overrule that. Right, and clearly, whether it's a, a local majority or a, a national majority, there's an actual fact of the matter on many of these issues, and the majority can be wrong. So I, it, it, and it is in fact a violation of my rights if, based on some junk science notion of, say, a cancer risk, a local majority tells me that you know I can't consume uh, sodas or, or some other kind of ridiculous regulation. Um, so in either case, whatever the majority is, if its verdict is a result of some irrational perception of risk, uh, it's, it's a detriment to, to, to people in that area. Yeah. And, and I mean, there are process issues to figure out in terms of how the rights should be, uh, should be adjudicated. But I think it's important that there is a right and that it is a moral issue and that it is morally superior to do it based on science than to do it based on people's uh, subjective preferences. And when we look at how those things are enforced and how the courts are involved and how the executive branch are involved, it, it all needs to be based on science and based on rights, which then uh, benefit, you know, benefit human life. Now, the other issue of, I say, subjectivity came up when we were discussing a comparison between, say, evaluating the threat uh, of some you know foreign agent or foreign government versus uh, predicting catastrophic global warming through something like uh, melting of methane hydrates. What was your take on that? 
Uh, so there seems to be an equivocation here, which is the idea that uh, <coughs> because, for instance, the issue of, <coughs> of a potential release of methane hydrates is a complicated scientific matter and because there's potentially a lot of uncertainty uh, about the order of magnitude of the probability of that, that therefore we simply cannot assign a probability to such an event and therefore we cannot uh, scientifically, there's no valid scientific process for determining the overall level of the risk that such a potential event uh, poses to us. But um, because, because the event is uncertain does not make the scientific process by which we evaluate evidence inherently uncertain as a process. And there is a rational process and one, one can objectively uh, determine a, a reasonable probability distribution for those kinds of events. Um, and it, it is possible that, for instance, experts may disagree on the application of this process in a particular case. But that doesn't change the fact that there is an objective process that, that can be carried out based on the, the largest context of knowledge available to, uh, to experts as a whole. Um, and then that, that process will have a specific result. So um, there, there, there is in fact an answer to the question of what is the probability uh, of methane hydrates being, um, being uh, emitted in such substantial quantities that they have a serious cat catastrophic impact on the climate. Uh, and, you know, experts with knowledge in the field can actually evaluate that probability uh, relative to their own expert knowledge. Now, for someone like, uh, for someone like you, uh, you know, an educated, intelligent layman, maybe you can't uh, come to that conclusion, but you can look at the result of expert processes and evalu evaluate their own reasoning and determine whether there's grounds to believe a given expert or not. Um, but it's simply because it's a very strange event and the event itself is uncertain does not make it inherently inestim inestimable in terms of its probability of occurring. Yeah, and, and there was a comparison to the foreign policy issue, which I, I disagree with. I mean, I disagreed with at the time, uh, but particularly since it had to do with a per very particular scenario about Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, whereas the way we're thinking of it with global warming is usual is you know is there any you know what are the chances that there's a catastrophic threat, including that includes that man through technology can't uh, adapt to, whereas you know with a country that is openly threatening the U.S. and uh, brandishing weapons, and you can say this is a threat, and certainly the probability there, if you want to call it that, looks absolutely nothing like the one for for methane hydrates. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. When you're talking about the evidence we actually have about what's in the mind of the Iranian clergy, uh, it's uh, it, 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 it's implausible to assign a probability that given that they achieve an atomic bomb, the probability that they would use it, it's very difficult to assign a probability to that. That would be, say, one in 10,000. I could maybe see an argument for it being one in 10 as opposed to 50%, or maybe even one in 100. But there's no way to reduce that probability to, to gain any kind of knowledge of these irrational people uh, such that one would actually come to the conclusion that the probability is negligible. 
So, I mean, I, I think a much more reasonable estimate for something like that for any informed human being who knows about the ideology and the history of, uh, in, you know, in this case, the um, totalitarian Islamic movement, it, the probability you'd assess for an event like that would be order one. It would be, you know, 10 or 20 or 5 or 15 percent. Um, and, and so it really is incomparable to uh, the uh, the risk of something like uh, an accelerated methane hydrate emission. Right. Now, just one final thing that came up uh, as an example was the issue of, well, I mean, I, well, I forget the context. My context for assigning probability in the case of someone like Iran is that we have an entire historical context that allows us to gain general knowledge about the workings of attacks and what different things mean, which you can then integrate with the present facts that you know about what's in the minds of people and what actions they've taken, which is different from positing something that's never happened. And then uh, he said, uh, Jerry said, in, well, industrial an industrial civilization emitting CO2 has never happened. But my take on that is, but higher CO2 levels have happened. So I don't see why it's a matter of the industrial civilization. Certainly higher CO2 levels have happened. And also it's, it's really irrelevant in this context that CO2 is the cause potentially of slightly warmer temperatures, slightly higher temperatures. What's relevant is that in the past, there have been definitely higher temperatures for other reasons. And those have not uh, precipitated uh, or, or caused this catastrophic release of methane hydrates. So the fact that industrial civilization wasn't involved in the past is totally irrelevant because the only positive mechanism for this methane hydrate emission is just an increase in global temperatures. And like you're saying, um, CO, high CO2 levels have occurred before, but also more importantly, high global temperatures have occurred before and this emission hasn't happened. Interesting. Well, I said I was going to say my own piece at the end, but I guess uh, I got it covered uh, during our discussion. So I'd just tell the audience, I mean, first of all, again, thanks to, to Jerry for coming on and for raising these issues. Uh, we've talked in person about them too, and it's it's uh, really thought-provoking, and he raises a lot of important nuances. Uh, I think for listeners, though, I think you can tell that there are certain um, you know philosophical differences in the way that uh, Eric and I come at it uh, versus the way uh, Jerry and, and many other libertarians come at it. And I think those are those are worth pausing on both epistemologically, what objectivity means epistemologically in terms of things like um, uh, like probability, um, and also what objectivity means in the moral political realm. To what extent can you say that something is really right, uh, you know, that's independent of what a given uh, majority says. Uh, Eric, any final comments? Uh, that about sums it up for me, too. I, I enjoyed the interview, though. Uh, all right. Well, as always, if you want to contact me with any questions or comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Uh, make sure to check out our website, industrialprogress.net. We have lots and lots of information on the recent Light Brigade, which Eric and I and a bunch of others were at uh, last weekend. And next week, we'll be back. Another great topic, another great guest. Thanks again to Jerry Taylor of Cato. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.